Welcome to Thinking Out Loud, the podcast that puts you inside conversations with the most deeply passionate, intensely dedicated, and yes, the most thoughtful people in our industry. So sit back and stay tuned. They may just change the way you think. Welcome to a special edition of Thinking Out Loud. In this two-part episode, Matthew Ball, analyst, venture capitalist, and CEO of Apillion Industries, and host Vicki Lins explore the waves of competition in media, the stimuli that have changed the industry landscape over time, and the strategies that have won the loyalty of consumers. Hello, I'm Vicki Lins, President and CEO of CTAM, a marketing organization focused on the media, entertainment, and technology industry. Today, I'm speaking with Matthew Ball, CEO of Apillion Industries, which is a venture and corporate advisory firm. Matt's also a venture partner at Makers Fund and an advisor to Telefilm Canada. And from 2016 to 2018, he served as the global head of strategy for Amazon Studios. And prior to that, was a director at the Churning Group's Otter Media. Matt also holds bylines at the New York Times, The Economist, and more. So you have likely heard from him in some way, shape, or form recently. Matt, welcome, and thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So there's a saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But in our industry today, it it certainly feels like the more things change, the more they're changing. Why don't you give us a a landscape view of what the heck is really going on? (laughs) That's a great question. And To answer a question as to whether or not the history is going to change, it helps to actually go back even farther, well beyond digital disruption, even the rise of the cable bundle, and to understand at a basic frame of reference that the media industry itself has been in a multi-multi-decade process of conglomerization, of expansion, of proliferation into new media categories. We can think of that in the sense that CBS was a radio station ended up buying Simon & Schuster, ended up moving into television. That television was based in broadcast. That broadcast moved to cable. And then, of course, Viacom CBS ended up owning a film studio at one point, theaters, and is now going digital. The best way to understand what's happening in this landscape today is to understand how we've seen this path before. To give a great example, Hello, Dolly! comes out in 1967. It is the Academy Award winner for Best Actress, Barbra Streisand, then one of the biggest stars in the world, Best Song, as well as Best Picture. And the economics of that title, however creatively successful and critically successful, led to what's today a $70 million loss in 2019 terms. That led the producing studio Fox to go into insolvency. That led... Fox to be recapitalized. It ended up buying ski resorts and a bottling company. And then a few years later, we saw Columbia go through its own financial turmoil that led it to being sold to Coca-Cola, a soft drink manufacturer. Then it ended up being sold from Coca-Cola to Sony. And of course, Sony at the time was predominantly in the Walkman and television business. This is a long-winded way of saying, when we take a look at the video industry today, We see these companies, Amazon, Apple, AT&T, Comcast, building out these expansive flywheels and platforms, these services-based businesses where video isn't the thing, it's part of the thing. I like to joke that the streaming wars aren't a war, they're just a battle in the ecosystem wars. And the truth of the matter is, we're seeing this faster than ever before because of digital disruption. 
We're seeing this faster than ever before because of distribution costs over the internet being close to zero. It's not like standing up a new movie theater, marketing a film. But this process of expansion from Disney making a movie to a theme park to products to television or of bringing all these assets together and seeing how you can diversify across them, we've been seeing that since the 60s. And if you wanted to, you could go back to the teens. So let's dive into a few pieces of that. Let's go back to the pay TV traditional business for a moment. Right. You have written about how what we're seeing is really a systemic undermining of a business that has years of life left. And I also see that very clearly from the central role that I play at CTAM. And there are days where I, I want to sort of say, hey, stop, wait, everybody, you know, <laughs> take a breath. But we seem to be plowing forward in this eagerness to get to what's next. So talk to us a little bit about where you see the traditional business and where are we missing some opportunities perhaps to slow down and protect the equity that we worked so hard to build? Yeah, I basically take a look at what's happened over the past 15 years to pay TV, and I think of it in three waves. And I think it's really important to understand those waves as different, and they don't relate to really when Netflix or Hulu launched per se or when the so-called streaming wars kicked off. That is to say that when we take a look at the 2000s, the 2000s was the period in which we saw rapid increases in pricing in television. We saw rapid expansions in the number of cable channels. We saw the early starts of the peak TV era. It is clear to any economist and even to many consumers who actually take a look at the a la carte prices for their television that the bundle produces value. The aggregation of content into a single price that's all you can eat was good for the entire ecosystem. I'll give you an example. In 1961, pay television fully penetrated. Nine in 10 homes had broadcast television. In 2010, it was still at 90%, but we went from 90% paying zero to 90% paying $70 per month. That sounds bad. The forced cable bundle sounds bad. But the average household went from five to eight and a half hours per day of video. That's a 75% increase. Many consumers would say, I only want five channels. I only want seven channels. But the fact that discovery was so frictionless, you could channel change, channel surf, get bored, move, discover content from a network you might not watch all the time, but you at least watch a half hour or an hour or a show, that diversity of access, the diversity of content, the shared success in the cable bundle was healthy in the extent to which it built overall consumption in this medium well beyond what you would get in just free, well beyond what you would get with four networks. CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox themselves would not have been able to reach eight and a half hours. But in the 2000s, we ended up hitting this period where the bundle started to pervert. The incentives were a little bit too extended. It is clear that we saw so many channels, so much content, such price increases that it was starting to outstrip what many people needed. That's where we talk about classic disruption theory and too many people were being overserved. However, it's important to understand that pay TV was still growing in consumption. Pay TV was still growing in the volume of content it was offering. And very few people would say that pay TV in 2010 was not better than in 2000. It might have been more expensive, but it was probably better. 
We had more RSNs. We had more sports rights. We had Mad Men and Breaking Bad shows that were inconceivable a decade earlier. But that's where we started to see the separation of sufficient value from acceptable price for consumers. The second phase starts really in 2007, but we see it through the 2010s. And that is to say new video substitutes emerge that don't erode the direct value of the pay TV bundle, Comcast or Charter were still good value. Again, $70 for 450 hours watched for the average household is enormously efficient. But we have Netflix and Hulu and then Amazon who emerge, and they're offering substantially, substantially better value in terms of how much you watch, what that experience is, and the price that you pay for it. But during the second phase, something distinct is still happening. Television is still getting better. We have improvements in the UI and X. We actually have some price improvements as virtual MVPDs come out, like DirecTV Now at much lower prices. And we still see more content coming out. Peak TV goes from about 250 series in 2011 to 400 by 2016, almost all of which are in the pay TV bundle. And so it's doubtlessly true that pay TV is still getting better. So phase one, Pay TV is probably getting too costly, and even though the value is high, the minimum threshold is too high, too. The 2010s up until about 2019, you have the emergence of increasingly popular substitutes that are much better value. They might still have major inadequacies, live sports, live news, first window content, but obviously Netflix was very high value at the time, $9 of ARPU for 60 hours per month. But pay TV was still getting better. What we have in 2019, and this is answering your systemic erosion point, is the third phase state, which is we are now at an unprecedented time in which pay TV as a bundle, irrespective of Netflix and others, is actually getting worse. The price is still going up, but if we take a look at what key market participants are doing, they are harvesting the ecosystem. Warner Media continues to move many of its signature series from TBS and TNT out of cable and into HBO Max, either as day of shared rights or as exclusives. There are several series that were once intended for NBC and USA, such as Brave New World and the Saved by the Bell reboot, but NBC Universal has decided to make them Peacock exclusives. Disney continues to take many of its series that were available on repeat or intended for distribution on Disney Junior or the Disney Channel, and they're moving them over to Disney+. Plus. We've seen this further. Viacom CBS has taken very successful shows such as The Good Wife, rebooted them as The Good Fight, and they're only available outside of the pay TV ecosystem. The last and best example is FX. John Landgraf initiated a program a few years ago to roughly double the output of FX. And last year, Disney decided that half of FX's slate is only going to be available on Hulu. You can't even get it in the pay TV bundle. It was going to be in the pay TV bundle. And the remaining half of FX's programming goes to FX the next day with either no or low ads and on demand. And FX Plus, which was an add-on subscription that had a large portion of the FX library, was only available to consumers via pay TV. Now it's going to be Hulu exclusive.
So we are seeing this shift that as all of these major media companies are moving towards digital direct-to-consumer relationships, they see some form of race and urgency. They are not just trying to manage the transition. They're now actively harvesting what is in the system. And that means that that system is going to get worse. We are actually going to see a massive drop, COVID aside, in the amount of programming available in that system. That will compound over time. And so as opposed to prior years when we saw escalating value compared to better substitutes, when we saw escalating prices commensurate with value, we are now at the point in which we're seeing TV, the bundle, have less. And what it has left is not the best of programming. I see that as distinctive. And that, to me, is the biggest challenge to any form of bundle or pay TV service or even managing current cord-cutting declines. Is that a chicken-and-the-egg scenario where you could say consumers led the industry to make these decisions to shift to what they wanted, or the industry started to make these moves to shift and consumers started to gravitate to what they were being offered? Right. I mean, I would think about it this way, right? It is not necessarily a chicken-and-the-egg problem per se, though, of course, in a macro sense, we know that direct-to-consumer SVOD is the preferred audience path. And therefore, inevitably, the industry was going to move to digital direct-to-consumer-first strategies. But this harvesting thing is partly an industry cohort behavior, which is there is some general belief that perhaps consumers don't have a fixed cap to how many subscriptions they have, three versus four versus five or six or seven Of course, John Stanky and others have been clear that they think there is or they fear that there is, but that there are at least benefits to how early you are in making that transition, which is to say, perhaps the audience doesn't cap at six, but the earlier you are, the more likely you are to be in that six, or you believe that maybe number four can reach seven out of 10 households, but number five will cap at five. And so that gives you incentives to be earlier. But so as a result, it's not so much consumer chicken and the egg in this specific sense, but it is prisoner's dilemma. It is scenario planning. Once one person makes a break, once AT&T decides that they are going to start using HBO Max as the exclusive destination for True TV and TBS and TNT, once Disney starts shifting more of their best content elsewhere, you have collective behavior that forces everyone to shift faster. If you are anchored on the old system and your competitors collaborate with you for success and your competitors move on, you have to too, which is to say Warner Media, Viacom, Disney, NBC Universal all collaborated in the cable bundle. But what that means is if three of your collaborators leave, thus harming that bundle or rather undermine it, and you're left You actually still get dragged down with some of that erosion, but you're not collecting the proceeds. And on the other hand, you now see dwindling opportunity or a race for the new thing that your competitors are going at faster. Whether or not this is 2019 or 2018 or 2017 or 2022 was really a question of competitive behavior. And of course, we can go back as early as 2013 when Reed Hastings was saying, this is how you stop Netflix and expecting most of these companies to do that through Hulu or some other vehicle 
in that regard, this may be later than anticipated. So part of this inevitable transition will likely lead to the demise of traditional cable network brands. The standalone value of a TBS or a TNT is greatly diminished when it becomes a subcategory of what's available on HBO Max. And we've seen a rise in the appeal and equity of program brands, where consumers are seeking out the program they want to watch, and the program stands for something in their minds, but where that program resides is no longer as important destination-wise for the consumer experience. So talk to us a little bit about that path and how you see that playing out. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting parts about that is we are at this weird state in the transition where everyone is coming with slightly different brands, slightly different content, and yet their ambitions are largely the same. And by that, I mean, what is the goal of Hulu? Let's put aside economics, but it's, or monetization, it is go after as many people for as much time as possible, with as much content as possible, with as much diversity as possible. We're going after everyone in the States. We're going to have all genres. We're going to have all styles, and we want them to watch Hulu as much as possible. Netflix doing the same thing. HBO very clearly doing the same thing in the rebrand to Max. That's why they had an ad campaign juxtaposing The Sopranos with Big Bang Theory with a pun on the bar that Tony Soprano used to frequent. And this whole strategy, which again is then going to be augmented by the shift to a lower price AVOD service, is not distinct from what Peacock is doing. Peacock is more clearly anchored in comedy because of NBC's history. But of course, they're coming out with a dark, high-budget, brave new world. Amazon, of course, is going after multiple genres, superhero, dark, gritty, lighthearted female comedy, international content as well. As a result, we're actually seeing a general shift away from specific brand ethos because the argument is we want to go after everyone all the time. And that's possible in digital delivery, right? NBC had to decide what it was at 8 p.m. in a way that Netflix does not or Hulu does not. They can be anything for everyone. Over time, we may see a slight reversion to more specific articulation. So if and as Hulu Max struggles to achieve Netflix-esque scale, we might see perhaps not an abandonment of large aspirations, but more of a focus on a specific brand ethos and curatorial vision. If Peacock starts to plateau and or finds that actually high-budget dramas and sci-fi dystopic pieces aren't really resonating, you might see them lean more into an ad campaign or brand ethos around just being the best of comedy. But right now, we're at a point in which everyone wants to be everything, and that's fine, reasonable, and certainly the biggest pie. But we might see a slight return to more of a brand-centric approach in the years to come, especially if and as Netflix you know, ends up remaining the most dominant video platform for premium content in the years to come. So hits are really important because they draw consumers, they draw eyeballs. When Netflix had House of Cards, there was a, a noticeable spike for them. Hulu with Handmaid's Tale, you can go on and on. And I guess the other category here that's such a driver is a well-recognized library of value. So 
how do you see this playing out across the landscape right now? You've got Warner Media, you've got Viacom, you've got NBC Universal, you've got Disney. You've, everybody's got sort of a, a hit or two and a library of value, and they're playing these sort of big brand names against each other right now to try to get consumers to want that, to feel like they should subscribe to that. That's almost an unwinnable race, right? You can't continue to just go for that big hit, the big name, or can you? That's a great question, Vicki. When we take a look at how the industry is working right now, there's been this phenomenal shift towards these big hits because the monetization models in SVOD are different than what they were in the traditional system. I like to talk about the idea that historically in the cable bundle, no one had AMC because of The Walking Dead per se. They might have The Walking Dead in the bundle, or rather AMC in the bundle, because AMC was able to use that title to get distributed in Comcast and get carried at a higher affiliate fee. But ultimately, those deals run for multiple years. The average consumer doesn't actually get to say in 2011, the success of Walking Dead is why I subscribe to that channel. In addition... The revenue from The Walking Dead was largely linearly correlated with the audience, which is to say The Walking Dead at 10 p.m., if it gets 1 million people versus 1.2 million people, that's a roughly 20 or 25 percent difference in revenue, depending on what your reference frame is. So in the old model, the value of a hit was diffuse because you had multiple year contracts across multiple different MVPDs all of which valued you for a variety of different things, not just a show. And the revenue model for that show was directly connected to what the audience was. That's not how SVOD works. In SVOD, in a subscription environment, a hit show can be the specific binary difference between having a network and not. Because of Game of Thrones, you have HBO or you don't. That's not a linear difference. That's the difference between Vicky giving HBO 15 bucks and giving zero. In addition, you have enormous ancillary lift. Let's use CBS All Access. Picard comes out earlier this year. Like Game of Thrones, it drives additions. And so that doesn't just drive more revenue to CBS All Access, but perhaps you'd like Twilight Zone from Jordan Peele, but not enough to get CBS All Access. Now, because you've joined CBS All Access for the hit Picard, you then try Twilight Zone, then you like Twilight Zone. There actually isn't direct revenue here, because again, there's not, for most consumers, advertising-based service, and therefore you're not capturing incremental revenue, but there's strategic lift in having you addicted to more of the shows on that network. This is all really complicated, and, and the dynamics can be hard to pin down, but the implication here is that these hits, or what I would define as behavior-altering titles, they don't need to hit everyone, but they need to convince Vicky to subscribe, are more important than ever. There's no way around that in the subscription era. And again, that doesn't mean it needs to be a tentpole. It can be something small like the Twin Peaks reboot, but it needs to alter user behavior. That won't go away whomever survives is going to have to keep playing this game and keep producing. But your question of can it go on forever is also a question of who will. And that is to say, one of the things that we've seen for quite some time is 
asymmetric abilities to create hits. I'll give you an example. Tiger King came out from Netflix. It popped to global significance. I think we can reasonably assume that while the content of Tiger King is the same irrespective of who releases it, had that come out on CBS All Access or Epics or maybe even Showtime, it wouldn't have popped, right? Netflix has greater reach and more frequency of use and longer session times than anyone else, which is to say more people have Netflix than Showtime, more people use Netflix per week, or the average user uses Netflix per week more frequently than they do Epics. And when they're using it, it's not for half an hour, it's for several hours. That ability to create hits is an enormous moat. Showtime last year came out with a Kevin Bacon series. They also came out with earlier this year, or I think in the fall, the loudest voice with Russell Crowe starring as Roger Ailes. That was Russell Crowe's first show ever. And it usually went by unnoticed. I think we can reasonably assume that those would have been more popular shows had they been released elsewhere. Of course, a few days ago, Schitt's Creek ended up doing a clean sweep at the Emmys with all seven category nominations, one out of seven possible nominations. And Eugene Levy, when he started his acceptance speech, said he wanted to, quote, thank Netflix, who set this whole thing off. And then today, it was announced that CBS was licensing several of their early shows to Netflix for one-year licenses so that they could build audiences. That's actually a reflection of the fact the rest of the ecosystem is saying Netflix can produce hits more easily than anyone else from a distribution standpoint. And so ultimately, the question that you're asking is going to come down to scale in some regard in terms of audience, which isn't different, but the dynamic is new. You mentioned the Emmys. We're talking about hits and attracting viewers and finding new audiences. You wrote an interesting piece about the Emmys for The Economist. Talk to us a little bit about your take on the awards show and the relevance of it and the importance of it and what it tells us about the direction that TV is taking. I mean, it really gets back to your earlier point on the more things change, the more they stay the same. When we take a look at the past five years or the five years preceding this year's award show, HBO and Netflix had roughly 50% of all nominations. And this was the year that the streaming wars were supposed to kick off. November of 2019 saw Apple TV+, Plus, it saw Disney+, Plus, it saw in... May was the relaunch of HBO Max. In April, we had the early launch of Peacock, Quibi as well. CBS and Viacom continue to unveil new and original programming. And yet this year, Netflix and HBO again had 50% of nominations. Over the past five years, HBO has won the best drama in four of those five years. This year it won again, so that's five in six. We saw some difference. Pop was nominated for its second time ever. Pop won. But again, as I just mentioned, many people, including most viewers and certainly Netflix, would say that Schitt's Creek is effectively a Netflix show. And certainly Netflix, as the long-term SVOD licensor or licensee of Schitt's Creek, will collect most of the benefit from the win, much like Breaking Bad was not a Netflix show. But Netflix elevated it to pop culture success such that it could win the Emmys 
and then collected much of the benefit from its success and still does to this day with spinoffs like El Camino. And so I think when we take a look at the Emmy, it is very clear that there is some signaling value from success here. HBO also makes the point that you can have super popular shows that are behavior affecting to subscribers and win awards, and they have continued to prove that. But what's astonishing is, again, if you looked at the success this year, if you looked at the nominations this year, and you went back to 2015 and said, hey, the future is going to look like this, but which year do you think this nomination slate comes from? They'd have no idea that it was at a point in time in which the market was more competitive than ever. Hope you found this Thinking Out Loud conversation interesting and perhaps even thought-provoking. There are more on the way. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review.